most of the time, what we see in practice doesn't transfer to games because what we're doing in practice doesn't look like games. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to be joined by Brian McCormick on the podcast today. When I asked Brian what he wanted me to share for his bio, he just said to say that he's written some books and coached some teams, but that doesn't quite do his work justice. He has his PhD in exercise science, and he's coached basketball at pretty much every level. He's a published author of multiple books on basketball and coaching, including the 21st Century Basketball Practice, Evolution of the 180 Shooter, and Fake Fundamentals, among others. He also consults with teams and programs, in addition to being a referee for multiple sports. Brian has a ton of experience and knowledge of skill development, the use of a games-based approach, and designing developmentally appropriate sport experiences for athletes. A few quick things before the episode starts. First, I read and took 30 pages of notes over Brian's book, The 21st Century Basketball Practice. Although it's a basketball book, a huge portion of the content is applicable to coaches from across sports. If you'd like to get a free PDF of my notes from Brian's book, Go to transformsport.org slash 21st century or click the link in the show details to get a free copy of notes. Also, if you'd like to get the free podcast notes from this episode or any episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes or click the link in the show details to get the free podcast notes. If you're already on my email list, just check your inbox for those notes. And lastly, in July, I'm launching the Coaches Club course and community. It's an eight-week online cohort course that will help you get better at teaching and leading so that you and your team can reach your potential. If you'd like to learn more about the Coaches Club course and community, you can check out transformsport.org slash coachesclub or just click the link in the show details. And if you'd like to reserve your spot in the upcoming cohort, schedule a free call to talk with me today. Go to transformsport.org slash free call or click the link in the show details to schedule a call to talk with me today and reserve your spot. Now to my conversation with Brian McCormick. I'm confident that this conversation will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. Coaches, I'm super excited to welcome Brian McCormick to the podcast. Um, Brian, I would love to just start here. Uh, We kind of connected via Twitter on a tweet that I sent out about basketball not being very developmentally developmentally appropriate uh, for a lot of kids. And so I would just love to hear your thoughts on developmentally appropriate sports, but specifically basketball, um, your thoughts on it and, and kind of the research behind it. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the, when I played, you know, I mean, I didn't start playing on a team until I was in fifth grade. You know, I started, uh, I think I got a hoop in my, uh, like a portable hoop, you know, in front of my house, probably when I was in kindergarten or first grade, um, you know, and then we played at recess, uh, you know, especially during basketball season, you know, from, from kindergarten through fifth grade, you know, um, but we didn't join team until fifth grade. Um, so I think people, you know, of my age that try to compare children starting out 
today, uh, you know, to what it was like for them, uh, you know, and how that affects development. I think it changes things because if, you know, I mean, I, I used to go out and shoot and, and stuff and, you know, I played on my own in my front yard a lot. Um, but I wasn't, you know, trying to get up, you know, 300 reps with a, you know, shooting coach or something like that. So, you know, even if my shot hadn't been perfect, I, I probably wasn't doing irreparable harm uh, to my future by messing around in my front yard, you know, for a half hour, an hour, you know, every day. Whereas now, you know, we, we take children as young as seven or eight years old. We put them in leagues. We put them on teams. We have them traveling. We get them shooting coaches, personal trainers, et cetera. Um, you know, in the hopes that that's going to accelerate their development. But really what we're doing is accelerating uh, the level at which they uh, automate their skills. And so rather than, you know, for me, uh, you know, let's say that, you know, I reach kind of a level of, of automaticity somewhere in junior high, maybe my freshman year, you know, of high school, um, you know, these children, they're starting at seven, eight years old and putting in all this time, you know, they're probably reaching a level of automaticity, you know, around, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old. And, and uh, you know, the shot that you use at nine or 10 generally is not going to work when you're a high school player um, unless you're using that shot on an appropriately sized basket um, and maybe for going three pointers. So if you're, you know, what I see when I coached at that age, you know, which was playing with, you know, at least, you know, under nines, under tens, we were playing with a women's ball um, uh, or a size six basketball. And we were, but we were shooting on 10 foot hoop and we were using, you know, a 19 foot nine uh, three point line. Uh, and so most of the shots for most of the players, obviously there's, there's going to be your outliers. There's going to be, you know, the, the child who, you know, grew earlier or is, you know, a little bit bigger and stronger than everybody else. Um, you know, maybe they can shoot with decent form, you know, out close to the three point line on a 10 foot basket, you know, maybe their hands are a little bit bigger so they can handle the ball, uh, you know, a, a women's size ball a little bit better, but on average, most of those children, you know, we're more throwing the ball at the basket as opposed to really shooting it. Um, and so they're, they're practicing and developing skills that aren't really going to help them, you know, in the future. Um, and so we're putting all this energy into, well, I need to accelerate the development, but we're really accelerating a sub, substandard level of development for our high school age. And so these players may excel uh, because of the time that they put in, you know, when they're eight, nine years old, um, but they're going to tend to peak early um, you know, because they're, they're automating skills that don't work once you get to a more competitive level, once, uh, you know, size tends to balance out, you know, once everybody's, you know, hit puberty and, and things are, you know, kind of as they're going to be. Um, but if you start those children, you know, with a size five basketball shooting on eight and a half foot hoop, then you can shoot and maybe you move the three point line in. Uh, you know, and you create a developmentally appropriate game, uh, you know, then you can shoot with the same kind of form or the same kind of shooting technique that will eventually uh, lead to success at a high school or a college level. Uh, and so I think that's the difference is, 
you know, if, if we're consumed with starting children at a younger age and putting them on teams and, and getting them playing more in these organized activities, uh, you know, which I probably would not be so much in favor of, but if that's going to be the case, uh, you know, playing on a, on a smaller hoop with a, with a smaller basketball, with a, you know, shorter three-point line is going to facilitate better development that's going to eventually transfer. Otherwise, all the work you're putting into is developing something that you're going to have to change at a later age when the player gets stronger, becomes more coordinated after they grow, um, you know, <clears throat> after these kind of things take place. Uh, you know, and also I think, you know, I mean, I'm one that anytime somebody asks me a question about, you know, whether we should play zone or press or whatever the case may be, you know, to me, uh, all those questions are easily answered by saying we should be playing three on three, um, you know, and, and a, did I coach nine year olds playing five on five? Yes, I did. Do we go to an AAU national championship tournament? Yes, we did. Did I play three on three as a child? Not generally because we had too many players at recess when I was, you know, second and third grade, you know, whatever we had 12, 14 boys, um, you know, uh, in our class. And so if everybody wanted to play basketball at recess, you know, we were playing six on six or seven on seven. Um, does that mean that some kids probably went an entire recess period and never took a shot? Probably. Um, you know, I was one of the taller and better players at that age. So it wasn't me, but I'm sure some of my friends felt left out because they weren't ever, uh, you know, shooting the ball or handling the ball or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, and so you, what we, what we tend to see is uh, we identify or we think that, you know, my child is really good at basketball. You know, he, he's on his team. He's the best player on his team. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's strong enough. He can, he can shoot, he can make the three pointer, you know, even if he, you know, is really only shooting 25% or something like that, but he can make them. Um, and so, because we've identified this player as talented, they get the ball more, uh, you know, they, they get to handle the ball. They get to shoot the ball more, they get more repetitions. And so this person that we've identified as talented starts to stand out and, and probably starts to improve a little bit more because they get more repetitions. So if you own know, an average game, you know, I did a study, uh, you know, regard, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, you know, that looked at the differences between three on three and five on five basketball. And the primary objective was to look just at the uh, physical activity involved um, and primarily to show that, uh, you know, playing three on three has the same amount of physical activity as a five on five game. Um, but one of the other things that we saw was in three on three possessions are distributed uh, a little bit more equally. Um, than in five on five. So in five on five, um, you know, your point guard is going to possess the ball more than anybody on the team. Um, and typically your point guards and your shooting guards, you know, or your wings are going to shoot a lot more than your post players. Um, in three on three, uh, it's similar. Your point guards still tend to shoot a little bit more. Your wings still tend to shoot a little bit more. Um, but the differences aren't as great. They're not, um, statistically significant, as we say, um, in research. Uh, and so, 
you're closing that gap. And so we always talk about, well, post players develop slowly. And it's like, well, yeah, post players develop slowly because they never touch the ball. You know, if your point guard is dribbling the basketball on every single possession, let's say there's 50 possessions in a game and your post player gets the ball and takes three shots per game, you know, of course your point guard is going to develop faster in every respect. And that, that, that that's not even to mention, you know, the likely, uh, you know, coordination effects uh, of growing or being the taller player, um, things of that nature. So, um, you know, to me, if we start children playing, you know, as soon as we want to put them in an organized competition, whether that's when they're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, you know, if they're playing on, you know, smaller hoops, you know, eight, eight and a half, nine foot hoops, and they're using a smaller ball, you know, size five ball, and they're playing three on three. Um, I think it's a more developmentally appropriate uh, version of basketball than putting them in a full court five on five. Let's press, let's play zone. Let's shoot, you know, threes from the high school three point line. Let's use a size six or size seven basketball because that's what adults do. Um, and consequently, because it's more developmentally appropriate, we're going to build better skills. We're going to build more confidence in players, you know, because one of the things that's going to build confidence the most is, is uh, you know, demonstrated ability. So, you know, it's great if that player thinks he's a shooter because he can, you know, shoot 25% from the three. But if, if we're seeing the ball go through the hoop more consistently, we're really going to develop more confidence um, and truer confidence as opposed to, you know, the, this wild confidence that, you know, I can do something that, that some children have. And, and really, it's probably a good thing to have that kind of wild confidence. You're probably going to end up developing more if you have that, um, you know, and, and, you know, I've written some things, you know, about not taking that away from, from young children, even if it, uh, you know, is not exactly what we might expect or might want. Um, but, you know, if children see the ball going through the hoop and, and, you know, everybody's getting more shots, you know, part of why they're going to get more shots is there's going to be more possessions in a three-on-three game. You know, they turn over quicker. Um, you know, you don't have to spend time running up and down the court. Um, you know, so you're going to get more shots total. You're, those more shots total are going to be divided more equally among the players. So everybody's participating a little bit more. Everybody feels more included. And all of these things help to make the experience more fun for players and help them uh, want to stay involved. And so one of the things that, you know, a lot of people talk about is, is children dropping out of sports at young ages and stuff like that. And the number one reason tends to be that it's not fun. Well, you know, research into basketball typically shows that the things that children think are fun are shooting and getting playing time and being included, you know, and if you're playing five on five and you're the guy that the coach goes and says, just go stand in the corner, you know, and stay out of the way because I'm going to let my best player, you know, go one-on-one, you're not getting a lot of shots. Uh, you're not really feeling included. You're not getting better. You're not improving. Uh, you're not getting the same opportunities. Um, and so when we, when we, you know, play on a, on a shorter basket, use a smaller ball, um, play three on three, use a shorter three point line. All these things are to build a game that's more inclusive for everybody, not just a game that fits, you know, the best player at nine, 10, 11 years old, but one that's going to work for everybody. And even if, you know, the parents of that best player think, Oh, it's holding back my child. It really isn't. Um, you know, and even the bigger players, there's, there's other benefits that they can get. I mean, I coached a, um, a player when I was in Europe um, who basically reached full 
his full adult height when he was like 12 years old. He was 6'2", 6'3", like as a 12-year-old. And so, uh, you know, obviously had advantages. He was playing still on, I think, an eight-and-a-half-foot hoop. Uh, So he was in games going up and trying to dunk. Well, that obviously gives him advantage at that age. I'm sure he probably was the best player. He dominated, things like that. But the other thing that helps him is when when he, you know, got to a 10-foot hoop, uh, you know, and he got to be 17, 16, 17 years old, he was dunking because he because at 12 years old, dunking was realistic for him. So he was taking all these attempts, trying to dunk, trying to dunk, trying to dunk. And all that is, is basically vertical jump training. Um, you know, so even, even the, the, you know, taller, the early developers that maybe, you know, could play on a 10 foot hoop at an earlier age, maybe they're strong enough or tall enough, you know, maybe it's giving them a slightly unfair advantage in one respect playing on a smaller hoop, um, you know, it's going to benefit them in different ways than it might benefit, you know, the shortest player on that team who the only way that he can, you know, make a shot is to play on an eight and a half foot hoop. So I think there's things to be bet- gained you know, whether you're the early developer or the late developer. Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating example too. And there's so much good stuff in what you said. I, I love the fact that ultimately it comes back to what kids want is a fun experience. And if we make the game fit them, it will be more fun for them. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, to follow up on that, and, and partly this is a selfish question because it's the situation I'm in right now. Um, I'm coaching a group of 10-year-olds, so under 10 basketball team, and all of our games are going to be five on five and a high school size court with a 28-5 ball and a you know high school three-point line. Um, in my practices, we've played almost no five on five. It's been almost all three on three. Um, the only five on five stuff I've done is going through a couple baseline out of bounds and sideline out of bounds. So we have those and, and we'll run the play and we'll play just a little five on five out of that. Um, and it, part of the reason is because when it becomes five on five, all those things you described, they happen and the quality of the game just tanks in our practice. But when it's three on three and there's this space and, and I, and I can add constraints that are much more easier to manage with three on three, um, the game so much better. So I guess my question is like, what, what is the balance I should be striking in practice between, all right, we're going to play five on five when we get into the game, but I know that three on three is better for them. And as far as their development goes right now. I mean, if the, if the goal is to win, then there probably needs to be some, you know, preparation for five on five, just so you know, they're accustomed to it and they can have confidence in different situations. The goal is development. I mean, it's, I'd be spending, um, you know, most of my time on, on three on three and you can teach, you can teach any skill that's going to happen in a five on five game out of a three on three. game. Um, the things that, uh, you know, are harder to replicate are some of the things that, that, you know, happen in five on five games that most people would argue shouldn't be happening. Things like, you know, a zone defense, um, things like a press, um, and the, and the ease with which you can trap out of a press in five on five versus three on three. Um, you know, so, so things like that, I mean, to a certain extent, it's, it's unfair to the children, uh, not to prepare for some of these things that you know that they're going to face in a game, uh, because then you're setting them up to fail. Um, and, uh, then likely 
not to enjoy the experience. You know, I mean, if they're turning the ball over every single time because they're seeing a trap that they've never seen in practice, um, they're probably not going to enjoy the experience so much. Um, you know, so it's, so it's a balance that way. I mean, um, but from a developmental standpoint, you can teach anything that you need to teach that applies to five on five out of three on three. Um, and then you can build from there. And, you know, once they, once they start to see some success with it in three on three, then you can add a fourth player, fifth player, stuff like that. Um, so that you're kind of building, you know, even like building against the press, you know, when we were, when I coached under nines, you know, we used to start practice, um, you know, one-on-one, then two-on-two, then three-on-three playing full court, um, and then build into four-on-four and five-on-five towards the end of practice. Um, and But everything that they were going to see in, you know, four-on-four and five-on-five, they'd seen, you know, the beginning of it in one-on-one, you know, two-on-two and three-on-three. So they, you know, in three-on-three, there'd be a trap, you know, two-on-two, we try to trap, you know, and so, you know, you have the dribble option or you have the pass option, you know, can you make that pass through the trap? Can, do you know, as, as a teammate, where to move to create a passing lane for your teammate who's trapped, you know, same then when you go to three on three and you're trapped, you know, you have two passes. Can you make the right one? You know, there's one help defender in that situation. So you basically have to read, you know, which of the two players is open. Can they create a passing lane, uh, for, for an easy pass as opposed to standing still and letting the one defensive player, you know, guard both of them, um, you know, then four on four, you know, you build the same way. Um, and so I think, I think you can teach all these things and, and really give them uh, the tools to be able to play in the five on five situation. Um, but they should, if they're playing five on five in, in, in their leagues, you know, they should, uh, play some five on five in practice so that they're accustomed to it and they're aware of it. And they, they understand where that second help defensive player is coming from, or, or if they're going to see a zone, you know, where, where should they be cutting in the zone? You know, where are the gaps where, where generally speaking, you know, without having to put in a complicated offense, just how do you attack a zone? Okay. Well, we're going to attack a zone by trying to create an overload against them, or we're going to attack it by trying to get the ball into the middle or we're going to attack it just by screening the outside of the zone and, and using dribble penetration, you know, whatever your attack method is going to be, but you're giving them the tools that when they get in a game, Oh, they're in a two, three. Okay. Against the two, three, we can do this or this, you know, if they're in a three, two, okay, well, we want to attack here and here. Um, so that it's not a totally foreign concept, you know, in the game. And every time they see a two, three, they just stand around and look at each other because they don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. That's helpful for me as I'm even thinking through planning my practice tonight with, uh, with these fourth graders. So I appreciate that perspective. Uh, here's, here's my next question. Uh, and I just finished reading, uh, the 21st century basketball practice yesterday. Um, really enjoyed it and it just challenged me to, you know, examine some of the things that I'm doing in, in my practices and in coaching. Um, we worked on this in practice like that I think is a favorite phrase of the heated coach when their team is struggling to do something in the game. And I think that it's an indication obviously that what you're doing in practice isn't transferring to the games. Um, would you talk about like, what are the primary reasons that coaches practices aren't transferring to games? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, the reason why most, practice drills 
don't, uh, there's probably two reasons. One is we expect immediate improvements, right? So, uh, you know, just because you've said something to me or just because we did one drill one time uh, doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, even if I can perform it okay in practice doesn't mean that I'm going to perform it um, okay in a game, you know, and, and even at, you know, at the level that we're talking about, you know, with fourth graders, um, what rate of success should we expect? You know, I mean, do we expect a hundred percent success rate? Do we expect a 50% success rate, even on something that we quote unquote, say that the, the players have mastered or really learned, really understand, can really do, you know, I mean, what success rate are we talking about? You know, I mean, even players who, who, uh, you know, I mean, let's say the best shooter, you know, I mean, even, even the best, you know, NBA shooters are shooting 50%, you know, so what success rate are we really um, expecting, you know, a, a fourth grader to have on, let's say, a, a, you know, breakaway layup, you know, or something like that, where we tend to think it should be made a hundred percent of the time, but we know that it's not, you know, I mean, I ref a lot of soccer, you know, and, and the expected goal for a penalty kick, which you assume a penalty kick is going to be scored every single time, but it's only 0.75. So, um, you know, things like that, like oftentimes our expectations are unrealistic. So I think that's one thing, but then uh, in terms of what I think you're getting at with your question is, um, most of the time, what we see in practice doesn't transfer to games because what we're doing in practice doesn't look like games. Um, and so if we're, you know, doing, you know, a standard pregame layup drill, uh, you know, and we say, oh, look, all, all my guys can make layups, um, but they're going at a perfect speed. There's no defense. Um, they're only using their strong hand. Um, you know, they're, they're, 60% speed, 70% speed, um, and they can do that. And then they go in a game and they miss. And it's, well, well, yeah, because it's defended. One, uh, you know, they got somebody chasing them on their hip, even if it's a breakaway layup. So there's, you know, the speed is a lot faster. The, their concentration is, is uh, divided between the defensive player and the rim. Um, you know, they're having to coordinate their dribble and their steps at a faster speed. So all these things go into why players miss layups during games that they don't miss during practice drills. Um, you know, and then that can be, you know, extrapolated out to anything else that happens in the game. But, um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, there's these competing ideas that one, we should practice harder than the game, make the game, make practice harder. So the game's easier. Well, if we really did that, we shouldn't see people that are shooting way better in practice than they are in games. If practice is that much harder than games, then games is where we should be performing better than where we're performing in practice. The competing idea then is the idea of game slippage. Well, of course we don't, you know, shoot as well in games because there's defense. It's like, well, then why don't we have defense in our practice drills? If defense is what's causing us to miss more shots, then why aren't we practicing against defense? If defense is causing us to turn the ball over, why aren't we practicing against defense? It's not a matter of game slippage. It's a matter of the practice drills 
not aligning with what happens in games or what causes the mistakes during games. And so, you know, you'll see a team and they go out and they commit a ton of turnovers in a game. Like maybe they're playing against the press, you know? So the two answers, if you commit a bunch of turnovers against the press, you have two answers. One, we're going to do some passing drills. So let's do some three man weave. All right. Or we need to put in a new press break. Okay. Neither of those two is going to solve the problem of, I don't, you know, I'm pressured. I make a faster decision or a rush decision because I'm pressured because I'm rushing. I don't see that help defender running into the passing lane. And consequently I turn the ball over or maybe I see him late. And so I try to hold my pass and I travel, whatever the case may be that, that issue isn't caused by the press break. That issue isn't caused by something that you can practice in a three man weave drill. You can only practice and improve in that situation if you're passing a, while being pressured while there is a defensive player trying to steal that pass. And so whether you do that in a specific passing drill, you know, something like, you know, a keep away game, or whether you do that in a small side game, two on two, three on three, whether you do that in a small side disadvantage game, like two on three or three on four or four on five. Um, that's how you practice that situation. You don't practice that situation by doing a three-man weave drill or, or a, you know, two-person across and we're going to shuffle down, just passing chest passes back and forth. And you don't solve that problem just with a press break. You know, our, our adult mindset, uh, you know, and our because this is what you hear from, from parents, you know, yelling at you as you're coaching, you know, ah, that press break doesn't work. No, the problem's not the press break. Okay. Um, and giving players more strategy, which essentially is what your press break is. It's the coach's strategy to defeat your opposing coach's strategy. Isn't going to solve the problem of not being able to see that defensive player running into the passing lane because I feel pressure. I need to one, learn how to handle pressure so that I don't rush my decisions and I have more vision of the court. When I'm the pass receiver, I need to realize when and how I can create a passing lane to make it an easier pass for my teammate and to take that defensive player out of position so that the defensive player is unable to steal that pass. Again, the, it doesn't matter what the press break is. If the press break is, you know, X to Y to Z, but a defensive player, you know, I mean, I laugh even at the college level, you know, we just set up press breaks. I mean, we don't even call them press breaks, but we just set up our alignment. And if somebody's trying to run a diamond press, they're going to be super aggressive. We just throw over it. And teams can't adjust their press. So they just take the press off. After we've gotten a couple of layups or wide open threes, they take the press off, right? You know, when I used to press a lot, same thing. You know, we caused a couple of turnovers, coach timeout, they changed the press break. Okay, well, we would just alter our press slightly, you know, or adjust to whatever their press break is. And then we would do the same thing, you know, and timeout, timeout. Okay, let's use our third press break. Let's, let's, and, and every, every time there's a mistake, it's not nope, timeout. I have to change where you are standing. The answer isn't where you're standing. If you know how to get open and as, as a ball handler, 
if you can handle that pressure, not panic, not rush, understand how much time five seconds is, understand how much time 10 seconds is, right? It doesn't matter what the press is or what the press break is. Um, it's only if I can't handle that pressure and my teammates don't know how to get open, um, generally speaking, um, that I need to, you know, call timeout so I can tell them specifically where to get open against this specific press. But then as soon as, you know, I mean, and you see coaches do it all the time, you know, okay, we're in a one, two, one, one, we caused two turnovers, coach calls timeout. So now we're going to come out in two, two, one press. And now whatever adjustments you just made to your press break don't work because we're in different positions. So you call another timeout, you know, and now you've used all your timeouts and we're just switching presses back and forth. Now, is that how youth basketball should be played? No, that's all about coaching. Okay. It's not even coaching. That's all about using the coach's mind, using the coach's strategy, using the coach's experience, you know, so the coaches can have this game and they're just playstationing their, their uh, players. That's what, you know, innovate FC on, on Twitter calls a PlayStation coaching, you know, cause it's just, we're just trying to see which coach has the most knowledge that can outwit the other coach instead teach your players, how to get open, teach your players, how to, how to handle pressure. It doesn't matter what the other team does. You can always get open. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's, there's no strategy that's going to make up for a deficit in the ability to, to read those visual cues and, and execute skills with it. So here's my next question, kind of a follow-up to that. When, when we start talking about things like small-sided games and constraint, a constraints-based approach and, and all of that, there's often lots of pushback from coaches. What have you found to be the most common misconceptions about small-sided games and constraints-based coaching? In terms of that coaches in have in terms of practice. Yeah, yeah. Using it. Like what are the misconceptions that coaches have about it that that make them uh push back to it or not want to embrace it? Um, I would say the biggest one, so to tell it in story form, uh, when I was coaching junior college, division one coach comes to practice, uh, watches practice, talks to me afterwards, man, really like what you do, good stuff blah, blah, blah. Do you ever do any skill development? It's like, I don't know. I thought the whole practice was skill development. Like, what'd you see? You know, cause you know, the basic practice was, you know, we did a dynamic warm up at the beginning, which I tend to do, you know, and then we probably did one block shooting drill. Uh, you know, and generally speaking, our practice would have a guard post breakdown, which is usually one-on-one um, areas where we typically get the ball. Uh, then we play, usually play two on two. Um, half court, probably did a transition um, drill, you know, either two on two rabbit, you know, two on two or two on one with the chaser, or maybe a five person transition drill, probably played three on three. Um, and then we skirmished five on five. Um, probably did another contested shooting drill, you know, shooting drill that involves defense. And that's a typical practice, you know, and so because everything except for the first two drills, the dynamic warm-up and, you know, the kind of block shooting drill, everything else involves offense and defense. Um, and so the coach doesn't see that as skill development. Um, they see that as playing. Um, and so to me, that's, 
that's the biggest misconception is that is that to develop skill you have to remove the skill from the game you have to remove the person from the game you have to break down the skill into segmental parts and then eventually sometime in the future put all those parts back together um you know to me uh if if we're just you know doing an uncontested passing drill or uncontested shooting drill or running through our offense five on or whatever to me that's not skill development um you know i think to really develop skills we have to be able to use them against defense because that's what happens in games um and so it doesn't matter if you're a practice hero and you can shoot you know 90 percent um you know during practice if you shoot 20 percent during games you know i mean i know some nba practice statistics that i'm not supposed to talk about but let's say player one is one of the best shooters uh, in the NBA and on his team is player two who is known as a shooter, but the percentages do not uh, stand up to, to kind of his reputation um, that he developed coming out of college. Let's say over the last year, um, you know, the, the team, you know, tracks all their practice shots, scrimmages, open shooting, you know, all the drills that they do, you know, whenever they're in the practice facility, um, you know, they've got Noah and they're tracking all their shots. So player one, one of the best shooters in the NBA, um, I believe he was, um, you know, I'm off the top of my head now, but I'm pretty sure he was around 65, 70%. Um, I think it was just over 70% on all shots and about 65%, um, on three point or 64%, something like that. Um, the other guy player two, who's, you know, not, you know, has the reputation, but, you know, his percentages, I'd be surprised if he shoots much over 32% right now from the three-point line. Um, he's over 80% on, uh, you know, three-pointers um, during all these practice activities. Um, now, I don't, I'm not there. I don't know the differences between the practice. Maybe it's because, you know, player one's getting more reps uh, you know, during their scrimmages and he's getting a lot more shots during scrimmages, which is lowering your percent, his percentages, maybe uh, player two knows that he's not shooting as well in games right now. So he's spending a lot more time, you know, on a gun or something, just shooting by himself, you know, catch and shoot. So that's why his, you know, percentages are going up. Point is, would you rather be one of the best shooters in the NBA and shooting 65% in practice, or would you rather be shooting 80% in practice and shooting, let's say, 33% during games. I think most people would rather be considered one of the best shooters in the NBA, regardless of what they shoot in practice. Um, and so, uh, you know, to me, that's one of the reasons why our team, uh, you know, over three seasons was one of the best shooting teams in the country um, because most of their shooting percentages transferred pretty well uh, to games. You know, we didn't have... Uh, I mean, we had two players that, you know, in practice were shooting absurdly high percentages, but most of our, you know, shooters, especially in the last season, you know, were fairly average shooters for, from a practice standpoint, but they were fairly average, you know, to better than average shooters during games. Their, their, you know, practice percentages were transferring a little bit closer than, you know, players who are, you know, kind of practice heroes. Um, but then they're, but then they can't shoot during games. 
and so that to me is the is the big misconception among coaches who who don't embrace constraints learning or don't embrace uh, you know small side games is that uh, you know we think of skill development as something outside and, and it it can't be fun it has to be hard you know we we look at you know Erickson's definition of of uh, deliberate practice you know it's something that's monotonous lots of repetitions lots of coach feedback or um, lots of feedback um, and we think that's what skill development has to be it has to be like this but we ignore the fact that Erickson was studying violinists and he was studying chess players you know he wasn't studying basketball players um basketball players don't need every time you shoot the ball you don't need feedback because the ball is giving you feedback you know your body is giving you feedback um you know with your kinesthetic awareness and so when you're getting that feedback every single time from a coach you're not allowed to develop you know, your own kinesthetic awareness. You're not allowed to, um, you know, learn to read the ball. I mean, you know, I know my players all the time when I'm rebounding for them, how do you know, you know, they miss a shot and I'm, you know, there to get the rebound. Like, how'd you know the ball was going over there? I'm like, I've done this a lot. I've rebounded a lot of shots, you know, like I can see where the ball is coming off your hand. I can see, you know, just see the fly of the ball. I know where the ball is going to go. I know, how if it hits this part of the rim, it's going to go this way. But if it hits, you know, an inch, an inch differently, then it's going to go that way. Like I just, I can see those things because I've rebounded, you know, one starting at a very young age and, you know, shooting by myself, you know, I never had a shooting coach. I never had a personal trainer to rebound for me. My dad, you know, rarely came out to rebound for me. I usually played, um, you know, I'd play horse with, with, uh, you know, the guy that lived across the street from me, I'd play one-on-one games with the girl that lived across the street from me, you know, but all of those, you know, I was rebounding my own shot. I was, you know, if I'm shooting in my front yard from an hour, I'm rebounding every single time, you know, I shoot the ball, you know, you do that for whatever from fourth to 12th grade, you know, that, that's a shit ton of shots, you know, and then, then, you know, I started doing, you know, individual training or shooting coach stuff with players when I was in college, you know, so I've been doing it a lot of years. So I've seen a lot of shots miss, you know, so I know where the rebound's going, but if those players have their own shooting coach when they're eight, nine, all the way through high school, who does all the rebounding for them and gives them feedback every single time they shoot the ball, how do kids learn? You know, I mean, I went, I watched a college workout, you know, I went, you know, when I was in grad school, um, the men's coach said, Hey, you know, he was a friend of a friend. He's like, come watch our workout. See, maybe you can, you know, volunteer on staff or whatever. Um, and so I went to the workout there's like 22 guys, coaches or non-players. I don't even know what they were on the court for two players working out. So you got one player on one end, one on each end, each of them have, you know, two staff coaches, you know, plus you've got the head coach in the middle, plus you've got trainers and strength coaches and wannabe coaches and, player coaches and student man, all these people. And every single person has something to say on every repetition because they're all trying to, you know, justify themselves being at practice, I guess, you know, and then you talk to the players because, you know, I was, you know, I was when I was getting my PhD. So I was, you know, a professor. And so I had players in my class. Oh, they hated the coaching staff. It's like, well, yeah, because they don't shut up. Like you, you, literally 
they would take a shot. They'd be walking back or running back, you know, to wherever they're starting their next repetition. You know, first the guy who was running the drill would say something. Then the guy on the side would say, something. you know, they're getting feedback from multiple people on every single shot. Like who would like that? You know, if every time you typed on a keyboard while you were at work and you had your boss over your shoulder, you nope, know, should have been an H instead of an M. Nope. Nope. Should have been like, nobody can work like that. You know, that's just not how, but we have this idea that the only way that children can learn is if an adult is giving them feedback. But what we're really doing is we're, we're trying to substitute our knowledge at the beginning, but we're impeding because we know that, you know, children, an eight-year-old doesn't know a lot about basketball, right? Makes sense. So he needs a lot of feedback to tell him everything he doesn't know, right? But what we're really doing is we're taking this short-term, uh, you know, or creating a short-term learning where, okay, yeah, like maybe that player is going to progress slightly faster because the adults giving them this knowledge and maybe they make a correction at a young age that, that gives them a slight benefit over somebody else. But what we're, but over the long term, what we're doing, especially if that conti- continues over, you know, some or most of their career is we're taking away their opportunity to learn, you know? And so I, I wrote an article one time about this, um, you know, kind of reflecting back about when I was in college and I was the first time, you know, a, a mother hired me to work as the, as a, you know, kind of the private trainer with his, her daughter, you know, she was, I think 10 years old, um, you know, and so we used to meet down at this court in Palisades and, you know, the, she learned pretty quickly, you know, and so, you know, when I, when I had played, I never did, you know, fancy drills or stuff like that. I just caught the ball and shot, you know, and I, if I wanted to learn how to dribble through my legs, I just dribbled through my legs. I didn't have any drills to do, you know? So now as an individual trainer and what do individual trainers do? They give players drills. So I would go and, you know, if we were going to work out at three 30, I would get there at two 30 and I would come up with drills that I could do with this girl to teach whatever I wanted her to learn, you know? So I was, so I was practicing on my own, learning these, you know, teaching myself and, Oh yeah, this would be a good drill. Okay. Oh, I saw this. Well, what if I change it to this? Right. And so she did all the drills and, you know, she improved a little bit through doing the drills. But, you know, when I started to think about it, I was doing all the learning because I was coming up with all the drills. I was coming up with all the ways for her to improve. She was just following my directions. And so, you know, because the drills were pretty good, they, you know, they kind of attacked what she needed to work on. Uh, You know, she improved a little bit, but she never really developed the autonomy to, develop things for herself to really look at her own skills and go, yeah, I need to work on this. Okay. How can I work on this? Oh, well, if I did this, then I would, that would really challenge me. And so that'd probably make me get better. So I'm going to do this. Okay. Now I'm starting to get, okay. Now I need to do it faster. Okay. Can I add what next can I add to it? And so because she never did this because I was doing it for her, you know, she improved a little bit, but like, I don't even think she ever played varsity basketball. Right. Um, so what's the point, you know, she got marginally better as a 10 or 11 year old, uh, you know, and her career ended somewhere, you know, I lost track of her cause I moved away, uh, when she was probably 14 years old. Um, but you know, if you 
hold back some of that knowledge or hold back some of those drills. You know, now when I coach with my college players, you know, I don't, I rarely use those drills. You know, I'll tell them, look, I want you to do, you need to do this. We want to, you know, work on your ball control. All right. You've got to come up with a way to do this. Okay. And now I want you to do that, but I want you to change the rhythm every single time. Okay. Now I want you to change the rhythm and the timing. Okay. Well, what do you mean? I don't know. Figure it out. Like this? Yeah, you're getting there. Okay. What if you tried this? Oh, I got you. Okay. So I'm, I'm forcing them. Like when I do individual workouts with my players and again, I'm talking about college players. So it's going to be, they're going to have a little bit more maturity, a little bit more awareness, hopefully. Um, you know, so it's a little bit different, but when I do individual workouts with my uh, college players, they have to come and tell me what they want to work on. And they can't just show, well, I want to practice my shooting. Okay. Like what? And I'm not going to answer the question for them. Well, I just want to get better shooting. Okay. Then go over there by yourself and shoot more. When you have something specific, like I'm not just here to be your rebounder, like, cause you want to get shots up because, and our, you know, our school can't afford a gun, right? Like I'm not just your substitute gun. Like if you just want a rebounder, you got to find a teammate or get a boyfriend on the men's team. Okay. One or the other, I don't care, but I'm not just in the gym to rebound for you. Right. So you need to tell me, you need to come in. Oh, so, you know, one girl came in, she said, you know, I'm a pretty good shooter, which she was. She shot 50% from the season from the three point line. Right. I think I need to improve. Like when I start to, to, you know, get tired or breathe heavy, you know, I don't shoot as well. All right. So <laughs> let's get running. Let's get you breathe heavy and then we'll get into some drills, you know? So she had a specific thing to work on, you know? So just saying, I want to get better at something random. Like that's not good enough. I want you to tell me exactly what you need to work on to get better at shooting or to get better. If you need to work on your dribbling, well, what like are we working on moves are we working on ball control are we working on what to do with the dribble like you know what do you need do you need more? you know i mean i remember when i coached in europe last in the middle of uh um uh, we're in the middle of the playoff series the first game we lost the first game um and uh they just pressed my 17 year old point guard same kid that was dunking when he was you know six three on a on a you know eight and a half foot hoop so he was playing point guard and they just start pressing him. They get real physical, get their body into him, you know. So he comes to, you know, he's real frustrated after game one. He's want, he's like, you know, can you work with me tomorrow? You know, the day between games. Like, okay. So I get there, we talk about it. So I end up having to play one on one against him, you know, and just try to, you know, I mean, I wasn't fast enough to stay with him to really put pressure on. So I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to body him and foul him all the way, showing him you know, what he needs to, okay, well, if you can't beat me because I'm bumping you. Well, that's what they're going to do. You know, the, you're in a men's league, like those 26, 27 year old men are built differently than your 17 year old self, you know, even as an earlier developer. Right. So you got to do something to that then other than trying to outstrength them. Right. That's not going to work. You're not going to outstrength me. Right. You know, so what can you do? You know, so then we, and up working on different ways to change speed to change directions and, and creating space and different things, you know? So, um, you know, that's what I do, you know, for my individual workouts, um, you know, because I want them 
to learn. I don't want it to be my learning and me getting to be a better coach because I'm doing the learning for them. You know, I want them. And so I think that, you know, it happens with a lot of children. They just don't develop the awareness anymore because they're getting so much feedback. You know, they're starting so early. They're not going out shooting, you know, just on their own. They only, they only shoot when they have an appointment with a shooting coach or a trainer or whatever, or maybe at practice, you know, they only shoot at school if they've got the gun, you know, so they don't rebound anymore. Right. So now, you know, people, oh, well, these kids, they're just not good rebounders anymore. We never asked them to rebound anymore. They're either shooting with a coach or they're shooting on a gun. When do they rebound? It's like, you know, let them shoot by themselves and they'll start to learn how to rebound a little bit, you know, see how, let them shoot with friends, you know, where you take turns, you know, then you can see where you can start to learn and see, you know, the flight of the ball and where the ball is going to go. You know, um, you know, there's a lot of things about old school basketball that are, uh, you know, still appropriate and still would help players. It's just, I think we need to, to, you know, use some of the modern uh, game as well. And, you know, in terms of, you know, and even some of the things that we do now that we turn modern basketball, you know, like constraints based, all we're doing is putting fancy names on things that the good coaches did. You know, I know people tell me all the time, Bob Knight played a ton of three on three in practice. Like that's all he did. You know, he didn't do a lot of uncontested drills. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I'm told, you know? So um, it's not necessarily, you know, I mean, the 21st century basketball practice, you know, the name of my book, but I know a lot of things that, that, we do or that I talk about in the book are just variations of things that good coaches have always done. I just think in the last, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years, we've adopted this kind of individual trainer mindset that you're only going to do skill development or you're only improving if you take away the defense or you isolate the skill or if there's a ton of feedback. And like, that's not how players in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that's not how they develop. It's not how, you know, People of my age in the 80s and 90s, that's not how we develop. That's how our practices were run. But like our practices can be run that way because we spent so much time playing. We would play every day, two hours, you know, of recess. We would go home. We would play on our own. We would get together on weekends. We would play, you know. And so we played so much that when we went to practice for that hour and a half, yeah, our coaches could work on specific drills and just kind of tighten up our fundamentals and give us plays to run and stuff like that. Cause we built all the awareness. We built our basic skills. We took a ton of shots. We took layups. We played against defense. We played defense. We did all these things on our own, you know, so that when we showed up for practice, they just needed to kind of tighten things up. You know, we didn't spend our free time with an individual trainer without defense and then go to, you know, an AAU practice where we, all we do is, you know, five on O offense and stuff like that. You know, we play. And so now we've, you know, and I get a kick out of it when, you know, especially coaches that are older than me, I talk to them. They're like, well, what'd you do when, man, I used to go to the playground for six hours a day. And all I did was play. And these kids these days, they don't play enough. They don't play. There's no pickup games and the parks are empty and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I know. We, we need to kind of bring them back. He's like, nah, kids just need to be in the gym training more. Get them on the gun. I'm like, how's the gun? going to replace two hours of pickup basketball. Like we're not even talking about the same things anymore, you know? And so I just think that we've gone to this idea. We've, you know, whether it's because of Erickson or because of Gladwell's book that, you know, kind of messed up his theories, um, you know, whatever it is, but we have this idea of 
learning happens when adults are in charge. Learning happens when we do lots of the same stuff. Learning, you know, skill development happens when we take away the defense and we work on fundamentals. Um, and none of this is true. And none of it's how most coaches learned how to play. And it's not how the great players learned how to play. Um, and, you know, we just ignore these things because that's just, you know, it's kind of, you know, that's how school, you go to school, the teacher talks and then, and you learn, it's not how you learn in school. It's not how you learn in sports. Mm, yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, I have, I have two rapid fire questions for you. Just want to know the, the first things that come to your mind, um, before we finish up. Uh, they're, they're kind of fill in the blank sentences. So the first one is this, uh, I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience. I have to think back a long time. Uh, probably I was, when I first started coach and I'm probably still a little bit like this, but probably a dick to anybody who's not on my team. Like I probably should have been more uh, cooperative with other coaches, with referees, other teams, stuff like that. Like, you know, I am definitely kind of a, you're on my team or you're not, um, you know, and I'm going to do everything for my team, you know. Um, and so I probably should have been uh, a little bit more mature. I mean, my first coaching job, I was probably like 17 years old. So I should have been more mature um, when I started coaching. Yeah. I like that. That's a good response. Take some humility to admit it. Uh, last one. I know I'm successful as a coach when blank. It's player feedback. Hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I, at the end of our season, again, with college players, you know, I had had them answer a couple questions. Mainly, I was just trying to get feedback so I knew what worked for them. Excuse me. So what what I could help the next group with, you know, I mean, junior college, you know, so much turnover year to year. My goal was, you know, to, to improve from year to year to help, you know, the next group more than I was able to help, you know, the first group. Um, and so I think. I, you know, I mean, I coach, I coach for the players. So, um, you know, I'm not really so worried about what other coaches or what other um, administrators, you know, what they say to me, you know, it's, it's the player feedback, um, you know, both from seeing them clearly improve, being able to do things from things that they say, um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, well, Brian, this has been awesome. Uh, last thing, would you just tell people, uh, how they can connect with you and, or, uh, get any of your resources and, and books? Yeah, sure. Um, probably Twitter's the best to connect, um, at Brian McCormick on Twitter. Uh, books are available on Amazon. I think all of them are available on Amazon now. Um, 
some of them that may not be available as paperbacks on Amazon or available at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com um, slash spotlight splat, slash Brian McCormick. Um, and then I have playmakersleague.com website has a lot of information on small side of games. It has research, you know, about a lot of things that I talked about, you know, small side games and then also basket heights, ball size, et cetera, et cetera. And then 180 shooters, more my kind of personal website that's more or less just devoted to shooting. Thanks again to Brian McCormick for coming on the Coaches Club podcast. And if you'd like to check out any of the resources or links that he mentioned, just check out the show details for all of those. And if you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a shout out on Twitter at Coaches Club underscore. That's C O A C H E S Club underscore. And finally, if you'd like a copy of the notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes. That's transformsport.org slash podnotes. Or click the link in the show notes to get a free copy of the notes from today's conversation. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.